Welcome to this very special episode of Horror Palooza. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank. And today we are going to be doing the very first ever franchise retrospective. We are going to look back on all the films that featured everybody's favorite lovable ginger redheaded voodoo serial killer kids toy, Charles Lee Ray. Or, you know, Chucky to his friends. And uh, and we'll even be going over the recent 2019 sequel, which was an attempted reboot of the franchise with a, a different backstory. But in the meantime, of course, go give me a follow over on Twitter at Skinless Wonder, or you can hit me up on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Uh, so let's get into this with the upcoming Chucky series debuting on October 12th on USA and Sci-Fi Networks. I thought it was a good time to go back and look at the films that brought us up to this point, especially because series creator Don Mancini has stated that the show will follow the series timeline. So why not refresh the mind by going back and looking at the story up until this point? Now, one of the many unique aspects of the Child's Play slash Chucky franchise is that there is a consistent story that plays through all of the films and characters pop up repeatedly throughout the franchise. And the only other franchise which stays this consistent, I think, is Saw. And it's arguable which one is more contrived and the logical leaps required to believe that the narrative devices used to continue the story. Uh, uh, Phantasm, I guess, also would, would fit into this. But uh, I thought it would be fun to go back and see all the ways that our favorite little murder moppet has evolved over the years and all the horrible things he's done to get him to this point. So, full disclosure, I had not seen all of the Child's Play films before this. I'd seen several of them. I'm the first one. Obviously, I saw Bride. I saw Curse. But I'd never seen the original sequels. I, I'd never seen Seed. I'd never seen Cult. And I have to say, now that I have seen them all, I have a whole new perspective on the franchise. These, these are a blast to binge watch. I actually highly recommend doing a marathon like I did. It's quite a ride. Uh, and in fact, actually, I found something pretty cool about these movies as I watched them back to back that I, I, I feel like a lot of people don't really discuss. And I actually hope to illustrate that aspect as we go through each movie on the show. We're going to talk about their history, what they brought to the franchise, the varying degrees of quality, uh, the evolution of Chucky himself, as well as the cast of characters who came along for the ride. Uh, and, that, and that's kind of another unique aspect of the Chucky movies. I mentioned that almost no other franchise has involved the same cast with characters that survive in some form to the very latest iteration. Well, no other franchise can boast that it still has the same actor playing the villain, barring the attempted remake, except, you know, maybe Robert England with Nightmare on Elm Street. But even in the new TV show, it's still Brad Dourif playing Chucky. He hasn't retired from the part. And this consistency and continuity in due large part to the fact that almost no other horror, horror franchise has been so persistently helmed by one creative mind. Don Mancini has written or written and directed every film in this franchise and will be helming the upcoming TV series as well. Uh, even Phantasm only made it to uh, five movies, and Coscarelli had help from David Hartman on the last film. So uh, while Mancini doesn't get screenplay credit, I guess, for the first film, without him, we wouldn't have a Chucky today. So I would say that counts. Uh, it, it's, it's really Mancini's voice that is the Chucky franchise as much as Brad Dourif's voice is the voice of Chucky himself. And as a result, there's an aspect of these films, which I want to discuss at the end of this retrospective. I mean, I'm going to wait till the end to talk about, 
Mancini's voice in this, and I think it makes the Chucky films even more relevant and noteworthy today than many of their supernatural slasher peers. So I will I'll save that discussion for the end. Uh, and just so you know, yes, of course, there may be some spoilers here if you haven't seen these movies. Uh, but if you're watching this as a way to refresh your memory about what happened on your way to the TV series, well, this will be pretty good for that. So let's dive right in. and Let's talk about the very first film in the Child's Play series back when it was still called Child's Play. And it came out in 1988, opens with the Lakeshore Strangler being chased by the cops. Of course, the Lakeshore Strangler is Charles Lee Ray himself, played by Brad Dourif back when he had the hair of a Greek god. He gets chased into a toy store, complete with legendary 80s tabletop game Fireball Island in the window, and is subsequently shot down like a dirty dog by the police, including the glorious Chris Sarandon, who is in the middle of one of the 80s most underrated run of amazing genre films, including Fright Night, The Resurrected, Whispers, Princess Bride. He was the voice of Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Sarandon is a lot of fun in this role as the cop. He utterly reeks of this world-weary Chicago-ness. And he gives a lot of layers to a character that could have been paper-thin. But he's not ready for what happens when the serial killer he just shot down starts talking voodoo, uh, Dambala and all that, and a lightning bolt from the sky strikes the toy store they're in, creating the most wonderfully 80s explosion and transferring Ray's soul into the nearest object, a children's toy good guy doll, which, of course, happens to be all the rage for kids at this year's particular Christmas. Now, apparently this particular doll gets swept up by a homeless guy in the chaos after the explosion, and it finds its way to a desperate single mother named Karen Barkley, whose son, little Andy Barkley, is obsessed with good guy dolls. In fact... He's obsessed with good guy everything. He eats the cereal, he watches the TV cartoon, he wears the outfits. He's the example of an 80s kid who is completely a sucker for a company's marketing. Something that was very much a thing in the 80s when unscrupulous companies would create cartoons just to sell toys and merch, and then parents would be scrambling to get their kids the latest toy or collectible. And as an 80s kid myself, I remember this phenomenon very well. And I still have a bunch of these toys lying around the place. Uh, it absolutely worked on me. Now, I can't say I would have gone for a good guy doll as Cabbage Patch Kids and Teddy Ruxpin, uh, my buddies, the some famous toys that the good guy doll was based on. Uh, uh, back in what, Hasbro 1985, I think, was my buddy. They were not my thing. But that's not to say that a boy Andy's age wouldn't have wanted one because... Many did. Uh, and to that point, besides the movie making this point about consumerism, it's also worth noting that Andy's lack of a father figure is underlying part of his need for companionship. The doll could be a substitute for a father, or it could be a friend to a boy whose mother works long hours in the makeup department of an upscale department store. Uh, it is funny, though, in this movie, that, that mother can't afford $100 for a good guy doll, but she's she will pay 30 bucks for a haggard but still acceptable one from a homeless guy out back at the store. She does try her best, and she brings that doll home to Andy. Uh, home is the most cavernous, labyrinthine apartment ever owned by someone who can't afford to drop a Benjamin on their only son for his birthday. But I suppose a studio apartment would not be as, as fun or as cinematic to run from a killer doll, and so we'll go with it. 
Uh, I mean, I drop 18 good guy dolls a month here in L.A., and my place is one-fifth the size of this castle, but I, I digress. It doesn't take us long to realize that the good guy doll Andy gets is really Charles Lee Ray in doll form, and the movie moves along at an excellent fast clip from this point, largely because director Tom Holland, and no, not that Tom Holland, Spider-Baby was minus six when this movie came out, uh, Tom Holland was forced to cut nearly a half hour off of the runtime. Tom Holland, uh, by the way, the Tom Holland that did Fright Night as well in the 80s. One, now, one wonders what the director's cut would have looked like because the movie's pretty perfectly paced as it is. Now, incidentally, uh, Holland and John Lafia are also credited with, with screenplay, even though Mancini gets credited with the story. Uh, but Holland would never return to the franchise because he is more associated with Fright Night. Um, and Mancini's original script was titled Blood Baby and spent more time making the audience actually wonder if Andy was committing these murders or if the doll had come to life. But as it was his only real film credit at the time, his first film, Cellar Dweller, came out the same year as, uh, as Child's Play, it was taken away from Mancini and given to Holland and Lafia, who obviously had their own hill to climb with the studio and what they wanted. Uh, but they brought their own aspects to the script. Apparently, the whole voodoo aspect wasn't even initially part of Mancini's script, which is crazy because it's been so it's become it's become so much a part of the Child's Play franchise. Uh, so uh, we we get back to the movie and his pacing. We rapidly see Andy trusting the doll, who tells him his name is Chucky, and Andy is the right age to believe that it's not out of the ordinary that his doll says more than just a few phrases that most good guy dolls are programmed to do. And he also is the right age for adults to hear him say that the doll talks and looks and they look at each other knowingly and go, oh kids, you know. But people start dying at a certain point because Chucky's going to Chucky. But this movie is held together by the performance of Katherine Hicks, who's a, just a magnificent actress. She plays vulnerable and sensitive so openly that it is hard to tear your eyes off of her or not to feel her every sensitive emotion. And she actually won Best Actress at the Saturn Awards that year for Child's Play. And Child's Play itself was nominated for Best Horror Film, but... It lost to Beetlejuice, which, you know, fair. Uh, so, Chucky goes on this revenge spree against his former associates, including the voodoo practitioner who taught him the soul transfer spell. And ultimately, Chris Strennan's cop comes to realize what Chucky is, as does Mrs. Barkley. And the latter third of the movie is them trying to save Andy from Chucky, because Chucky has realized that his voodoo magic trick requires that he transfer his soul into the body of the first person to know his true identity. That, of course being Andy. All right, let's talk about the voodoo here, because of all the crazy things in the Chucky movies, the voodoo magic is definitely the most wacky and goony, and it's an open-ended plot device, which could be, and sometimes is, wildly ridiculous. But it's also a useful conceit, because we as viewers, once we accept that the voodoo thing is okay, we're on board for so much more. And that comes in handy down the line in the series. But it was never Mancini's idea. And you can tell as the franchise goes on that Mancini only really has a certain amount of patience for it, although I think a lot of the series' most fun contrivances are thanks to the magical nature of Chucky. So ultimately, naturally, they kill doll Chucky after lots and lots and lots of him coming back over and over again, hilariously so, to the point it actually becomes a series hallmark that it's just fucking impossible to keep a good serial killer doll down. And he keeps coming back over and over and over and over in all these movies. But the real story of the movie is Andy. 
and his isolation, the fact that during the course of the movie, he is mocked for having a doll, he's taken from his mother's by, mothers by authorities, he's betrayed by the only male figure he's ever trusted, and ultimately he has to act in a mature fashion just to survive. So, And Don Mancini has stated that Andy's perspective as a child without a male figure in his life is the real meat of the movie. And and he also wanted to make it a movie about consumerism. And both of those were kind of stripped away a little bit uh, in the, the Holland screenplay. But you can still see that some of it's there. And looking at this first film in context with how the rest of the series plays out, it does make Andy's story the real horror in a movie series where a murderous doll repeatedly stabs people with large knives. Which, of course, is exactly what happens in Child's Play 2, which came out a couple years later in 1990. And whereas the first film is a bit more moody and whimsically dark, the second starts us out with this portentous bang because they hired Graham Revel to do an orchestral score for Child's Play 2, something he had never done before, though apparently he lied that he had uh, he wasn't the guy at this point who was one of the most prolific film scorers of the 90s and aughts. He was just the guy who had scored Dead Calm at this point. And the feel of his music for Child's Play 2 is initially a bit jarring when you're just coming off the delicate score by Joe Renzetti for the first movie. Ravel's score is ominous, it's theatrical, it's pretentious. Ultimately, it's pretty fun, as the idea of this movie is to go bigger than the first movie, and it's the first time the series would get into more grand horror tropes as opposed to a tight family tale. Not that there isn't a lot of family dynamic in this movie, there's a lot of it, but the dynamic is once again one of a shattered family. Andy, who, again, it's only two years later, he's played by Alex Vincent, uh, who was a fantastic child actor. Uh, it's very convenient that this movie was released two years to the day after the first one, because of the critical financial success of that movie. Um, so this, at this point, Andy's been put into foster care after his mother is committed for insanity after the events of the first movie. After all, who would believe that a doll could walk and talk and kill? Apparently nobody. So he's alone now, and he's adopted by an apparently wholesome couple who cannot have their own children, but they are apparently foster care regulars as they have another foster daughter named Kyle, Played by, played by Christine Elise, who's largely otherwise known for being on Beverly Hills 90210 and being the living girlfriend of Jason Priestley, though now she's fairly active in film production and festivals and whatnot. But the second she's on screen, she's immediately a star of the show. Uh, while, now, while Kyle falls into many of the tropes of a world-weary, smart-ass, early 90s teen, she's also quite nuanced and relatable. She's not just an average snarky teen, and that Secondary character depth is something that is also a hallmark of the franchise at its best. Mancini is excellent at not making characters mere cardboard cutouts, but breathing humans who aren't just defined by their cliched actions, but by the ways in which they surprise us, the viewer. And frankly, uh, Christina Leach does a great job with this material, making her relatable while still keeping that teenagery edge. Uh, the mother and father of the household, played by Jennifer Agutter of American Werewolf in London fame and Garrett Graham of Terrorvision, Chopping Mall, and It Lives 3 uh, fame, they're likewise nuanced. They could easily have been two-dimensional, 
Oh, she's sad because she can't have kids, and she's also kind of lost. He's grumpy because of these damn kids breaking the house rules. But luckily, both characters actually have moments that humanize them beyond this. Uh, but this all provides the backdrop to Andy's story. He's now a bit of a pariah. No one believes his Chucky story, and he's learned to keep quiet about it. Uh, Alex is great here. Alex Vincent is fantastic here. He's a, he's a soft-spoken, dour kid. He barely ever smiles, and he looks at everyone with these serious eyes as though he's waiting for them to bite him. You can feel his caution and his reticence to engage. It's actually a very effective way of creating tension because, you, as you know, at some point, he's going to be right, and Chucky is going to come back to get him, which, of course, he does because the company that made Chucky had some bad press about their dolls due to the whole incident with Andy and his mom. But that's not going to stop them from making a buck. And sure enough, the corporate weasels over at Play Pals grabbed the destroyed pieces of Chucky from the first movie and refurbished them in the opening sequence, which is really cool, as a stunt to please the shareholders. Because that's a good plan. Well, it's not as lightning strikes the production unit and causes explosions. And the scumbag who authored the idea then has to take the new and improved Chucky out of the building. And, well, as you know, Chucky gonna Chucky. And after a little bit of uh, corporate downsizing, old Chucky finds out where Andy's gone. And since Andy is his ticket back into a human body, he's off to the races. So, while the first half of the movie is some nuanced storytelling about the tribulations of foster children and the emotional effects of trauma, the second half goes full 80s horror including some fun, creative kills, some of the series' best, in my opinion, plus some of Chucky's best one-liners, and some of these over-the-top set pieces, including a ridiculous fantasy factory of death, which, and, and including a direct reference to the Shining's hedge maze sequence, and again, Chucky proving that he is the god of coming back from being, quote-unquote, dead. Uh, and it's actually these, these final big, crazy sequences would become a hallmark of the series as it went on, um, at least for the next couple. But, of course, ultimately, Kyle and Andy put Chucky down again, but it's somewhat open-ended as to their face because by the end, their foster parents are dead, bodies trail in their wake, they've wrecked the factory that makes the good guy dolls, and once again, their only excuse is the killer doll did it. Now, Child's Play 2 was a step towards the 80s horror tropes of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, at least in terms of how the kills happened, the glib nature of the killer, and so forth. And it really did cement Chucky as being one of the icons of horror at the time, and a, quite a pop culture figure as well. Something about making killers fun was definitely an 80s tradition. Freddy started out as a psychotic child killer slash possible rapist, and he ended up on cereal boxes and killing teens with a wink and a Nintendo Power Glove. I mean, Jason went through a lot of iterations, but he, he ended up as a somewhat lovable super zombie killing machine who just wants to please his mommy and will literally knock your head off if you challenge him to a fist fight on, you know, let's say, a Manhattan rooftop. I mean, at this point, Chucky was still terrifying in theory, but his wisecracking and the playful way he would kill people, including this, the ridiculous photocopier kill in this movie, they put him in line with his other horror brethren at the time. But then things kind of stalled. That is, after Child's Play 3 came along less than a year later 
1991. So between one and two, there was a two-year span for production and release. This was mirrored exactly in the story. Two years passed. Between Child's Play 2 and 3, there was a span of a whole nine months of production, but a jump in the story of eight freaking years. As you can imagine, this necessitated the recasting of our boy Andy Barkley, and Alex Vincent was replaced by Justin Whalen, who at the time was, I guess a little bit later, was known as Jimmy Olsen from Lois and Clark. Uh, who off the bat, he cuts a bit of a prettier picture of Andy because he's kind of a cookie-cutter, early 90s pretty boy, fresh out of a teen beat magazine or a Saturday morning high school dramedy. Uh, and the part almost went to Jonathan Brandeis, but, uh, you know, he, he, didn't, he declined it. And uh, luckily, at the end of the day, Justin Whalen is a pretty good actor. And as a matter of fact, the cast as a whole takes some pretty thin plotting and does a good job with it. Uh, particularly, I want to point out Travis Fine, who plays a bullying senior cadet at the military academy that Andy at this point has been shipped off, shipped off to. He's an, he's an airline pilot now, that actor. Crazy. But yes, that's right. We're doing Full Metal Chucky this time around, complete with all the tropes of the sensitive kids being ground down by the oppressive fascistic structure and bullying culture of the military. And frankly, it makes Child's Play 3 feel like two whole separate movies mushed together because that's what it is. Don Mancini has stated that due to the studio rushing him to write Child's Play 3 before 2 had even hit the theaters, he was out of ideas and was stretched thin. And ironically, some of the ideas he did have didn't even make it into this film, like the idea of multiple Chuckies, which wouldn't come back around until Curse and Cult. And the casting of John Ritter, he wanted to have John Ritter in this movie, we wouldn't end up seeing him until Bride, the next movie. But what we did get was an older Andy, a cast of peers and military school superiors who vary from the mundane and cliched, like the hot, rebellious, badass chick who Andy, of course, ends up getting together with, or the awkward, bespectacled best friend who doesn't really want to be there, or the bullying senior classmate, or the severe, uptight commandant. To the out, some of them are outright bizarre. You get like the mundane, cliched ones, and then you get these really bizarre ones, like Sergeant Botnick, who's this twitchy, psychotic dude with a really bizarre love for giving military-style haircuts to kids. Now, luckily, he's played by Andy Robinson, who uh, the guy who was Scorpio and Dirty Harry. He was Larry Cotton and Hellraiser. Come to daddy. He was Garrick. He was fantastic as Garrick in Star Trek Dark, uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, among many of the legendary roles. So he's, he, the character's a hoot, even though it feels wildly out of place with the tone of the rest of the movie. But the Military Academy stuff is slowly dipped into slasher territory by the arrival of Chucky, who has, of course, been resurrected by the unscrupulous toy company. He's killed its CEO in this fun sequence involving a lot of toys being used very unsafely. And he shipped himself off to find Andy. But he quickly realizes once he gets there that he doesn't really need Andy anymore, though, because he reveals his nature to a young African-American boy named Tyler, and therefore can transfer himself into his body instead. And the movie got into a bit of hot water for the line, yeah, Chucky's going to be a bro. But maybe it's just me. That seems like something Chucky would say, because remember, not really a nice guy. So then once again, Andy realized Chucky's there, because, and it becomes a cat and mouse game of trying to save Tyler while being stuck, you know, at military school, including a mock battle gone wrong when Chucky somewhat ludicrously switches the paint pellets for live rounds. 
And actually, originally, the results of that were going to be more of a bloodbath. But apparently, logistics and budget, and perhaps realizing that having a bunch of kids shooting each other for real might not have been in the best taste, prevented that. So ultimately, uh, they chased Chucky down to a carnival. We go full on back to 80s Slasherland, the ending of this movie. And we have another big final showdown showcase in what is inarguably the most epic and huge and unsafe spooky carnival ride haunted house ever made. There are these 10-foot-wide open fans in the place. There's these flying mechanical beasts that take your head off, unsecured trams, running on rails. It's, it's madness. Now, last, naturally, by the end of this, Chucky falls off a giant mountain of skulls into said giant fan, and he's torn asunder, which is a pity because... The carnival section is really where the movie gets going. And pity, it's 20 minutes from the end. And apparently, Peter Jackson was originally asked to direct this film, but declined to go do Brain Dead, which really is actually pretty smart on his part. But imagine the Peter Jackson Child's Play 3 we could have had. Now, by this point, Chucky himself... Uh, had actually become pretty advanced. This was the first movie that he was computer-controlled, lining his mouth up with Durf's pre-recorded dialogue. But sadly, due to the, the directing or the tech required, he often doesn't feel as in the scene with the actors as he did in previous movies, or, or certainly in the sequels where the technology gets even better. You know, in the first movie, you had a bunch of tricks being done to actually place him in the scenes with the actors. And very rarely in this is he actually in the same frame. Uh, and this was definitely the low point for the franchise. But as low points go, there's still a lot to like here, even though much of the middle of the movie feels less like a Chucky movie and more like a high school film of the week or a very, very special episode of Saved by the Bell. But unfortunately, there was also a bit of controversy with the movie as it came under fire in Britain for allegedly inspiring two children to kill a two-year-old and for a horrible murder of a woman outside of Manchester. Uh, naturally, all this was never, the link was never proven uh, that, that they were inspired by the movie. The movie made them do it. But the stigma continued to surround it undeservedly for years after. And after this, it did seem like the series had stalled a bit. But after a bit of a hiatus, Don Mancini would prove that he wasn't out of ideas for good, far from it. He had just saved them up for Bride of Chucky which came out in 1998, seven years later. And the Chucky movies have had a bit of a ride in terms of production, from originally being owned by MGM and its subsidiary United Pictures, United Artists, which was sold to Quintex, or was in the process of being sold to Quintex, which was a financial services company out of Australia. And they didn't want to make horror movies. Uh, they had this somewhat Rupert Murdoch-esque top guy, and he just well, didn't want to do horror movies. That's a crazy story, by the way, but... Uh, but the producer, David Kirshner, who has been another of Chucky series' guardian angels with the aid of Steven Spielberg, ends up bringing the rights that he and Mancini had retained from their MGM deal to Universal, which snapped it up. Uh, there was a whole big bidding war for the Child's Play franchise after one. And it, al it allowed them, because they had such a great bargaining position, they were allowed to keep the ownership of the characters. I mean, I'm, I'm grossly simplifying all of this as the MGM Quintex story is, it's insane. In, including the head of United Artists, Dick Berger, he just gave the Child's Play franchise to Kirshner uh, because Quintex didn't want it. He's just, you have it. That never happens. Uh, but that's the long and short of it. 
And actually, funnily enough, Spielberg being a fan of Chucky should be news to no one who saw Ready Player One because Spielberg finally got to put his favorite little redheaded serial killer doll in a fun sequence in that movie. But ultimately, they would have to go to Rogue Pictures and Relativity Media for a seat of Chucky. And since MGM ultimately retained some of the rights to the franchise, they were able to, the MGM was able to do the remake. Uh, and the franchise also eventually got renamed to Chucky as opposed to Child's Play, which is it's funny because it's kind of like Friday the 13th being renamed to Jason. Um, so the fourth film wasn't Child's Play Bride of Chucky. It was just Bride of Chucky. And take it as you will. Uh, I don't think it makes a big difference either way, but you know, Chucky's definitely the thing that people associate most, most with the franchise. Um, and like Child's Play 2, announcing in its opening music that it's a whole new story, Bride opens with blasting Rob Zombie. Uh, it's got this 90s lighting and editing. Uh, it's, everything's toned blue. And it has the arrival of Mr. Ronnie Yu as director. Now, when I think of Ronnie Yu, I think of horror fun. What with Freddy vs. Jason being one of the most fun and well-executed romps of either of those franchises. Yes, I said it. Fight me. I also think of cool Hong Kong action. Go check out Bride with the White Hair or Legacy of Rage, which he did with Brandon Lee. Uh, his stylistic cool style injects a new life into this franchise at this point. And after three, it is a whiplash effect to go straight into Bride because the attitude shift is so intense. Three takes itself pretty seriously, and Bride opens with a shot of a police lockup with Freddy's glove, Jason's mask, Michael Myers' mask, Leatherface's chainsaw, all together in the same room as this dirty cop sneaks out Chucky's remains to a vampy, campy, exquisite Jennifer Tilly, who plays Chucky's former girlfriend, Tiffany. And the soundtrack as well is very 90s, but it's also from the era of amazing movie soundtracks with Rob Zombie, Slayer, Static X, Monster Magnet, Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Type O Negative on it, among others. Uh, and they also mercifully brought back Graham Revel for the score after Three's rather flaccid outing by Corey Larios and John D'Andrea. This is where the franchise takes a turn for the fun and the ridiculous. And this movie is pretty wild, if also ridiculously dated. It's very 90s. So, Tiffany wants a combination of revenge and a romantic reunion with old Charles Lee Ray. And after bringing him back, thanks to a copy of Voodoo for Dummies, yes, really, and realizing that he's not going to marry her after all this, she, just, she decides to imprison and torture him, which isn't a great idea as Chucky is going to Chucky, and he breaks out and kills her with a TV to the bathtub, juxtaposing the image of the Bride of Frankenstein screaming with Tilly screaming as she expires loudly in a movie called Bride of Chucky. Chucky then, of course, brings her back in doll form, and then they go on a road trip with a couple of unassuming teens who are just trying to get away from a mean uncle who won't let them be together. And apparently Chucky now needs an amulet he was buried with, or his real body was buried with, to go, to go get himself and Tiffany back into human form. So they're going to put themselves in the form of these kids. Anyway, the, the two kids they sneak along with are pretty bland and innocuous. Uh, the girl is played by a 20-year-old pre-Hollywood exile, Catherine Heigl, and her beau is played by an actor seven years older than her, and they're both supposed to be teens. Oh, casting. Oh, casting. Uh, but we also finally have John Ritter here as Heigl's unpleasant cop sheriff uncle. 
uh, who is determined to stop the two from being together, but he ends up getting turned into a satire of Pinhead after Tiffany booby traps a van he's investigating. Uh, it's, it's nice to see John Ritter again, and he's, he's wonderfully unpleasant here. And once things hit the road, the movie gets weirder and weirder. There's people getting turned into jello by speeding semi-trucks. There's lots of Sid and Nancy and Mickey and Mallory and Bonnie and Clyde vibes. There's a, and then there's a plastic doll sex scene that needs to be seen to be believed. But it's all played for fun and for chuckles without the pretentious seriousness of the last few movies. And it mostly works as long as you have a pretty black sense of humor, which, of course, I do. Uh, Chucky and Tiffany having a tender reunion while he's sitting on a pillow that's suffocating her weird, awkward, virginal goth boyfriend is one particularly chuckle-inducing scene. And actually, the boyfriend uh, was actually played brilliantly and wonderfully over the top by trans activist Alexis Arquette, who at the time was presenting as a male but ended up transitioning fully in 2006 before passing away from HIV-related myocarditis in 2016. And I bring up Arquette's involvement now because around this point is where certain elements start showing up in the Chucky films, which I think are noteworthy. I also want to point out this movie has a very strongly written gay character, Heigl's best friend, David, who is played very gently and evenly by Gordon Michael Woolvett. And were it not for one scene where he sensitively relates to Heigl's character that he understands how she feels not being able to be with who she wants to be with, uh, because his father forbade him from seeing his boyfriend. If he hadn't had that scene, we wouldn't know the character was gay. And at the time, this was a particularly subtle depiction, as usually there was more of a tokenism or a parodic element to go on with gay portrayals. We were seeing more of them, but for every one of these, you'd have ten of the birdcage with Hank Azaria flailing and squawking all over the place. But I'll come back to that as the representation of queer characters in the Chucky films is a point I want to chew on a bit more. But ultimately, this movie made a bunch of money, over $50 million worldwide, becoming the second most successful film in the franchise after the first Child's Play, the highest grossing one overall, and it reinvigorated the series. Or you'd think it would. Instead, for some reason that's very hard to find out, we had to wait six years switch production companies, and move to Romania to get Seed of Chucky in 2004. So at the end of Bride of Chucky, Tiffany's burned, mutilated corpse spews out a voodoo baby that uh, came from that doll sex scene. And at the beginning of Seed, we see through this baby's eyes as it stalks and kills people in first person, only to find out that all of that is a bad dream and the baby's actually now grown up, named Glenn, has a British accent, and is a slave in Britain as a fake ventriloquist dummy performer. Wait, a fake real one? A real fake one? He's a ventriloquist dummy who's actually alive. Anyway, he's working for an abusive guy who keeps him locked up in a birdcage. And Glenn bears a striking resemblance to Aladdin Sane era David Bowie. He sounds like the Geico Gecko, although he's actually voiced by a pre-Lord of the Rings Billy Boyd. And he has some serious issues with his identity. He doesn't know who he is until he sees a preview for the new Chucky movie on TV and realizes he's the son of Chucky and Tiffany. See, we've gone all meta now. And Chucky and Tiffany's rampage really happened, has been sensationalized, and now, in the world of the Chucky movies, there are now 
Chucky movies. So to take it one step further, Jennifer Tilly is playing Tiffany in these movies, essentially playing herself, playing herself. And so as Glenn goes to Hollywood to find his origins, Jennifer Tilly takes over the movie and essentially spends the next hour making relentless, brutal fun of herself. And I dare you to find a film where an actor or actress mocks themselves, their looks, their career, everything about them, and makes themselves look as ridiculous as Tilly does in this movie. It is an absolute brass balls performance, and Tilly is amazing in it. She was fabulous in Bride. She made that movie. But it's here that she elevates into some sort of performance art, and it's by far the best thing in the movie. Uh, Chucky and Tiffany are, of course, brought back to life by Glenn, and the murdering starts anew. But we are introduced to a new concept for the series. See, Glenn doesn't like to kill. He's a sensitive soul, and in fact, he's conflicted and confused about a lot of things, including the fact that he has no genitals, like a Ken doll. And this leads to Tiffany declaring him a girl, and Chucky saying that he should be a boy, because, of course, Chucky always wanted a boy. Now, Glenn, who I will refer to going forward as they, since it's at this point in the movie that they are no longer presented as single-gendered, uh, they don't know if they'd rather be Glenn or Glenda, and as a result, ends up having a mental breakdown by the end of the film. Meanwhile, Jennifer Tilly is trying to morally convince herself to sleep with Redman, who's also playing himself, rolling around, for some reason, not to his own music, but to dollar store 50 cent knockoff rap. Um, she's trying to convince herself to sleep with him because he's going to direct a movie about the Virgin Mary. And what better way to convince someone you're virginal than by boinking them on a casting couch because your career is in the toilet? Uh, Redman also sends himself up here. He ends up being a lot of fun, which is a good thing because the part was originally supposed to be Quentin Tarantino playing himself, which would have been amazing. But sadly, since the production had to end up mo uh, moving to Romania as opposed to California for the tax breaks and because of budget purposes, Quentin Tarantino had to drop out and Redman stepped in. But it is amazing how well this movie mimics L.A., I had no idea it wasn't actually shot in L.A. when I was watching it, though there are several second-unit shots and pickups that are absolutely L.A., including a, there's a Mulholland Drive scene where they, they run Britney Spears off the road. Uh, there's a shot of the North Gower Gate at Sunset Gower Studios. Uh, but it's, it does a great job, of, with the exception of some green screening that you can kind of see, it's, it, it looks great. Uh, and it was Mancini's first time directing a Chucky film, and though he lacks the polished excitement and rampant Dutch angles of Ronnie Yu, he has an eye for a good shot and a way with actors that would only improve as the sequels went on. But the fascinating thing about this movie to me is the coming out, if you will, of Mancini in this movie. Now, he had full creative control here, and he wanted to follow the wild ride of Bride with something even more far out. And almost as if winking at his audience he cast John Waters as a paparazzi photographer trailing Jennifer Tilly. Now, to be clear, John Waters is one of the most influential figures in queer and transgressive cinema, and he's the godfather of the trash picture genre. In addition, Waters started his own career doing violent puppet shows and was fascinated by puppets at a young age. So there's an irony to him being in a killer doll movie surrounded and being killed by puppets. But even more so that he's killed by a puppet, albeit accidentally, 
with gender dysphoria. It's also telling that his character is named Pete Peters, as many of his characters in his films have alliterative names, such as, oh, let's see, uh, Corny Collins, Cuddles Kavinsky, Donald and Donna Dasher, Don Davenport, Fat Fuck Frank, Francine Fishpaw, Link Larkin, Motormouth Maybell, Mole McHenry, Penny and Prudy Pingleton, Ramona Ricketts, Sandy Sandstone, Sylvia Stickles, Tom Tomorrow, Tracy Turnblad, Ursula Utters, Wade Walker, and Wanda Woodward, for example. <laughs> but, but here... He represents something more, I think, than just that. Mancini is intentionally or otherwise letting us know what this movie is by having Waters be prominently featured. And had Tarantino been involved as well, I think it would have rounded out the homage. Because Seed is Mancini's love letter to the transgressive and alternative cinema movement championed by artists like Waters, Ed Woods, and others. Glenn or Glenda is even explicitly named after an Ed Woods film about cross-dressing, where Woods played the title character, reflecting his real-life his real life habits. There is this archness and a, a self-lacerating acerbicness to many of these films, and Seed has a good deal of playful self-loathing in its DNA, which lends it a very black comedy air, making it in some ways a darker movie than Bride when it comes to the humor. And the casting of Waters is indicative of this mindset of Mancini's, embracing trash to an extent, but like Waters' movies, always aware of the gaze of the eye of the highbrow. They're knowledgeable about what that is and how the opposite of that will play, and they're willfully skewering that mindset so as to be willfully transgressive. In and of itself, a rebellion against the norm to mimic the will to transgress in one's personal life. And the character of Glenn or Glenda is the tip of the spear for that transgression. At the time of its release, there was no social discussion about gender or trans existence the way there is now. The terminology didn't exist, especially on a wide basis outside of scientific terms. And certainly the social empathy didn't exist. Uh, Glenn or Glenda is still painted very broadly here. And the idea of gender dysphoria or trans existence as a gateway state to madness is one that has a long an ugly history in cinema, uh, particularly horror cinema, and it's one that isn't exactly played off here. Glenn or Glenda does go mad, and multiple times directly referencing Anthony Perkins' Norman Bates in this movie, and that character for a long time held a place in people's minds as the guy who thought he was his mother and killed people because he's nuts. The not knowing who they are but not sure why they have these monstrous thoughts is a horror trope for homosexual or LGBTQ metaphor, and it's one that has a history of both alienating the LGBTQ community while also creating a metaphorical touchstone that can be identified with. And the NFC kind of shows us that touchstone. It Thanks to this artificial insemination of Jennifer Tilly with a, a voodoo set of twins and a little bit of, you know, Dambala voodoo magic, Glenn or Glenda end up split into both a human boy and a human girl. They're no longer both in one body. It's an interesting and somewhat bittersweet conceit. Thanks to voodoo, this was an option. But in the real world, there is no such way out for those of us who don't feel right in the bodies we are in. And it's funny that I'm deconstructing what is easily the most light and silly entry in the Chucky franchise because the funny thing is it may have the most social relevance of any of them. But sadly, this, arguably, this arguable relevance and the accompanying ridiculous tone of the movie 
did not play well at the box office, and this would be Chucky's last bow in theaters as the next movie would be released direct to video, but also be possibly the best film in the franchise, and that, of course, is Curse of Chucky. So from the wacky hijinks of Bride and Seed, we slow back down to pure southern gothic horror with this amazing 2013 entry in the franchise. So in this movie, Nika Pierce is a paraplegic living with her mentally unstable mother in a giant old dark house, which is their family. Their family's apparently owned this place for generations. So one day, a good guy doll is delivered. The mom apparently commits suicide, and the rest of the family shows up with their secrets and grudges and petty squabbles to fight over who gets the house. Of course, eventually we find out that the good guy doll is really Chucky. He kills fucking everyone except for Nika, who we find out was stabbed in the womb by Chucky when he was Charles Lee Ray, and, then, and he was obsessed with her mother at the time. But then he frames Nika at the end of the movie and gets her sent to a mental institution for the deaths of her family, which, of course, Chucky killed. Ouch! Uh, this movie goes back to being way dark. And between the atmosphere, the lighting, the intense suffocating tension, it's easily the scariest film in the series. And Nika is played by Fiona Dourif, Brad Dourif's real daughter, who apparently Mancini had known peripherally since she was seven. Uh, he'd heard that she got into acting, and he actually cast her as Nika despite her auditioning for another role Due to her experience, partially due to her experience with playing paraplegics, she played one previously uh, in After the Fall, and the fact that Mancini felt she had this haunted quality to her. And he's not wrong, uh, because she brings this world weariness and a grit to the character that many other actors would struggle to play, let alone naturally exude. Uh, it makes her a perfect new protagonist for the series, especially as it goes back into more classic horror territory of creaky old houses, dark corridors, stormy nights, true horror tension, including a particularly Hitchcockian sequence around a packed dinner table where someone's chili has rat poison in it, but we don't know whose. But just because it's familiar territory doesn't mean it's cliche. Now, while Curse has the framing of a classic horror tale, the character twists are fresh, with an inversion of the cheating husband and the babysitter angle being one of the most refreshing changes to these overworn tropes in the film, as well as the particularly bleak ending. And speaking of the ending, there's a late scene uh, after the, the supposed ending where we see the return of Andy Barkley, still played by Alex Vincent. Now, obviously much older, but still wise to Chucky's tricks because he blows Chuck's head off in the short sequence that we see after Chucky mails himself to Andy as a way to finish their old score after all these years. And after bringing Andy back into things, retconning Charles Lee Ray's final moments before being shot, uh, revealing that Chucky still has the facial scars from his reconstruction in Bride, even though he was dismembered, isn't he always, at the end of Seed? Uh, th these are ways that Mancini is trying in the later days of the franchise to create an overall lore a structure for his series, which is now inarguably his baby and will likely be his most enduring, lasting work in this world. By tying it all together, he can make the whole series more essential. Even the lesser entries like three, because now there's a progression to the story. Even though tone and setting change, there are, there are enduring characters beyond simply the main antagonist. And that keeps us as an audience engaged and invested. And in addition... 
Mancini has gotten a better handle on what works about Chucky. The, the Chucky doll in this one may be the best basic one. Uh, the eyes are just vacant enough. The expression is just rictus grin happy without being over the top. The hair looks great. Uh, and when it comes alive, it looks truly psychotic. And over the course of Bride, in which Chucky sits a lot but has a wonderfully expressive face, and Seed, where the dolls move a bit more, including a, a kung fu scene that hasn't aged very well, the animatronics of Chucky and the other dolls have inarguably improved. And going back and looking at the first movie, where he was a combination of animatronics, puppetry, forced perspective, uh, casting little people and child actors to play from a distance, and then look, looking at him now in Curse, where he's mostly animatronic but also digitally assisted, you can see how far he's come technologically. Uh, I love the conceit in the first Child's Play that his face grows more human as he stays longer in doll form. It, it truly is creepy by the end of that movie. But with that plot device out of the way, he no longer is trying to become human all the time, uh, the, trying to get out in, in time before the spell makes him permanently a doll. With that out of the way, it was time to make a definitive Chucky. I mean, the torn-up stitch Chucky face from Bride and, and Seed is still a great, scary look. Uh, and it does come back here, of course. But now having a couple of different options gives Chucky's visual more flavor. And the design in Curse may be the synthesis of all the best aspects of Chucky's look over the years. The lack of any movement on screen from Chucky for the first half of this film was a great choice as well, as the creepy doll with its current design for this movie sitting there uh, is just creepier when it's just sitting there, staring. And then when it finally does move, it's far more terrifying. We haven't seen Chucky that still since the first movie. I mean, I do have to nitpick a couple flaws in this movie, which are pretty goofy. There's a cop who spins out a U-turn just to go interview a household at 3 in the morning because an apparent DUI may have come from there. Uh, Chucky's revving an engine on a car, and he's visible through the windows while being only two feet tall, so unless he has the legs of Big Bird, and we now know from how he drove a Hummer in Seed that he does not, uh, it, it, it's, look, it's overall, it's the reason we're getting a Chucky series now. This movie is why we're getting a Chucky series, despite my nitpicks. People responded to this movie. They responded to the change in tone, the step back into pure horror, and even though Universal dropped the ball on the release of this movie and the next one, sending them straight to DVD, there seem to be, more, to be more people these days joining the cult of Chucky. I Sorry, I couldn't help it. It's, uh, that's the next movie, of course, 2017's Cult of Chucky. Uh, as much as I, 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 I loved Curse, Cult definitely took it in a direction I was not anticipating. Uh, and although Curse is definitely the scariest film in the franchise, nothing in the entire series is more horrific than the opening scenes of this movie. And not in a traditional sense, not because of the gore or jump scares, but because we learn that not only has Chucky, as he has bragged, has stolen Andy's childhood, but that Andy has turned into a monster. A monster of Chucky's creation through the paranoia, disappointment, disillusionment, and betrayal that he experienced as a child. He's a broken man. And for anyone of a certain age who looks at their childhood stories being updated with the same cast as the same characters, now equally older, who have lived beyond the usual happy endings or just endings that used to end stories, be it Star Wars or Blade Runner or Ghostbusters or Indiana Jones or Train Spotting, etc., 
this is another demarcation of the loss of innocence and the toll that life takes on those who had a future because the future is now and it is never what you dreamed it would be. And in the first three films we saw through that dour, serious acting that Alex Vincent had even as a child and the troubled, quiet performance of Justin Whelan in the third movie, this was always Andy's future. The character's sad arc makes sense in the overall picture of the franchise. And nothing in the series is more tragic than seeing that sweet, innocent little young boy who just yearned for a friend with his cereal and his, and his, his, his good guy pajamas watching cartoons on a Sunday morning. Nothing in the series is more tragic than seeing that, that kid who's yearning for a father figure, for a connection, ultimately succumbing to the darkness that consumed him as a result of a capricious act of fate that was spawned out of an act of goodness and love by his mother. Because really, what is more horrific than something good being irrevocably poisoned into something evil? Andy is now an overarmed, socially inept recluse, and he keeps the head of Chucky from the end of Curse in a vise on a pedestal in the center of his quite stocked armory as a plaything which he apparently tortures regularly. Now, I mean, not that Chucky doesn't deserve it, but damn, that's still cold. But this movie isn't about Andy. It just gives us a taste of Andy and <laughs> makes us depressed, and then it moves on. It's about Nika, who is now in an insane asylum after the events of Curse and has been slowly gaslit into believing that she must be insane. And the trope of a character being convinced that what actually happened, in this case the previous movie, was a figment of their own imagination is not new or uncovered ground. However, for some reason here, it really captured my imagination. I understood how someone like Nika, who lived through the events of Curse, could be convinced through what can only be considered brainwashing that she was actually insane and had actually done all of the horrible things that she was accused of she was experiencing a break with reality, and that her thinking the doll was alive was all a delusion. It's a truly disturbing concept to chew on, and Fiona Dourif doubles down on her great performance in Curse with an absolute monster of a performance in this movie, especially considering that by the end, she's playing someone else entirely. And I'll get to that. The Asylum itself is shot with beautiful austerity. If Mancini was evoking Hitchcock in Curse, here... He is channeling De Palma, big time De Palma. And as we dip back into some rather obvious tropes like the lascivious, sexually abusive head psychiatrist or the multiple inmates and their unique individual expressions of mental aberration, we also get a new twist on the series. Remember the multiple Chuckies that Mancini wanted in three but would have been too difficult to achieve? Well, they finally show up here. And as a result, even more mayhem occurs, ending in Chucky finally accomplishing his goals. He possesses Nika. He tricks Andy into the asylum and locks him up. And then he escapes with Jennifer Tilly and Tiffany. Wait, what? I mean, I guess that will be explained in future installments. Uh, and he escapes in Nika's now totally mobile body. Oh, the power of the voodoo. It is a great, bleak cliffhanger ending. Frankly, it feels like the ending of a good middle chapter of a trilogy. And Mancini does say he wants to make another Chucky film proper, despite the TV show happening. Um, and he did throw in another teaser at the end with Kyle, Andy's foster sister and 
fellow Chucky murderer from CP2, Child's Play 2, showing up at Andy's place to continue to torture Chucky's head and possibly rescue Andy. It's a great, oh shit, moment. As another example of the franchise reaching back to continue the stories of characters that were previously established but not killed off. And in this case, a welcome return of a fan favorite. So, we have to wait to see where the story goes next. Um, and that's where we leave off the Child's Play series. But, before we can get to the TV show, MGM decided that they should try their hand at rebooting the franchise, throwing the future of Mancini's Chucky movies at the time into peril. So, lucky we got a TV show because for a while there, he thought this might have scuppered the whole thing. Because in 2019, we got the remake of Child's Play. Let me get this out of the way now. I'm not a fan of the remake. I heard all about the central conceit of how they were going to handle the doll coming to life. I thought it was dumb as a box of rocks. And, and that's compared to a voodoo serial killer doll. But I was willing to give it a shot, and I tried to go in with an open mind. And I still fucking hated it. So, now we get from the part of the show where I go from gently appraising the previous Chucky movies to tearing this piece of donkey shit a new asshole. This movie is arbitrary, contrived, ill-conceived, poorly executed, hollow, full of worthy ideas and possibilities, but without the creativity or savvy to relay them in an entertaining, coherent, or engaging way. They decided to make Chucky a robot. <clears throat> Essentially an intelligent home device with that all-encompassing byword, AI. Yes, he's an AI Alexa doll Terminator with the ability to tap into the cloud. Here's the thing about AI. When you use it the way they do in this movie, it's just as fucking unfeasible and magical as fucking voodoo. Oh, he's a learning AI who had his safety protocols turned off by a disgruntled sweatshop worker, so that's why he learned weird and gets possessive and wants to kill. Magic. That's Magic. It's not saying a prayer to Dumbala or transferring the human soul, but it's magic. And what's worse, it's boring magic. And bottom line, they're still having to use a lot of this magic to make Chucky work, even if the magic is now disguised as fake tech that is Star Trek levels of science fiction in what is supposed to be a modern world and is supposed to be skewering the interconnectedness of our quote-unquote plugged-in lives. And the satire doesn't rise far above this, sadly, with only a couple of half-hearted attempts to joke about kids going outside to play and being too much on their phones. I mean, for what it's worth, by the end of this, being on their phones a lot is what saves the day in the end anyways. So they undercut their own satire. Now look, it, it's, it's difficult to critique this without having the original in mind. But even when trying to assess it on its own merits, there's multiple decisions that are made to attempt to connect this with the original, such as the idea of an interactive doll, the name Chucky, the fact the doll is somewhat stabby, the, the bond with the kid. They're, they're, all of that would seem quite bizarre if this weren't based on something else. Remember, the first Child's Play was considered a fairly bizarre movie when it came out, a very unique idea. So if they had done this on their own, it might have seemed original, but at this point, it wasn't original. This is a remake. Uh, much better ideas could have been found instead to fulfill the apparent intentions of this plot if they hadn't been bound by the self-imposed restrictions of this being a remake. And if, if you want to think of this as an homage, 
honoring the original, if that's what it was trying to do, it goes beyond being a failure to being insulting. Removing the character of Chucky and making him a literal robot and calling out the robot apocalypse trope in the dialogue of the movie and yet blithely bumbling along afterwards as though they hadn't just said that the Emperor, in this case the central premise, has no clothes, that takes away one of the hallmarks of the franchise, the character of Charles Lee Ray. It would be like redoing Nightmare on Elm Street and taking away the glee with which Freddy kills teenagers. Oh, wait, they did do that, and it turned out about as well as this. Look, Chucky's acidic, sarcastic, misanthropic, sadistic, foul-mouthed personality is the baloney in the sandwich of these movies, and here they try to replicate it by putting similar words in the mouth of, for lack of a better word, an innocent. The robot, essentially, is blameless. He starts out as a blank slate. He's had all his chains and restrictions removed, but that would, by nature, make him a blank slate. There's a movie that could be made about how these horrible little children corrupted this robot and made him a killer because of their behavior. Uh, see, apparently you can't watch a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel once uh, because you'll immediately want to stab people, according to this movie. But that's, look, that's not this movie's intention. They, they, they move, the robot has to be a killer in this movie because the remake is called Child's Play. So it's almost predestined that this robot will turn into a killer. They just have to contrive ways in which he gets there. And in addition, they try to redo the look of the Chucky doll, which is, it's relatively successful in some scenes, but overall, it's more just odd than scary. And look, Mark Hamill is an inspired choice for the new voice of Chucky. Uh, but frankly, sadly, he does his best work in scenes where Chucky is saying these certain sinister lines, especially in certain very nicely nuanced ways, but it makes no damn sense why he would say these things unless AI, unless magic. And the disconnect between the original character of Chucky and what he is to what this character must be as a remake of that character is what draws the biggest gulf in this film. This doll has to say these things because it's what Chucky does. In the originals, Chucky's character is what makes the doll say these things. It makes sense. And in addition to the loss of the character of Chucky, we also get the rewriting of his origin story and the surrounding characters. And Aubrey Plaza is horribly miscast as the single mom of Andy. She never gets to use the talent that brought her to the dance, which is her dark, quirky, offbeat personality and demeanor, except for one scene she gets at the beginning when she deals with returns at the weird Walmart meets TJ Maxx shop she works at. Her character is unlikable, as it's written. She has no arc to speak of. They, they attempt one. They attempt to have her have some sort of redemption angle, but it's not there. Uh, it feels arbitrary. It feels like she's a secondary character in a movie where her motivations should be one of the driving forces behind the action. And in the original, Catherine Hicks was the soul of that movie. She cared so much in every scene she was in, and it shows how much it matters that characters should care, especially when what she cares about more most is her son. And he's the one thing we as an audience are supposed to care about. We're not sure what Plaza's character cares about other than getting laid by scumbags and making sure her kid isn't too unhappy. But her real lack of connection to Andy hamstrings this movie after the first couple of scenes attempt to give us a sense that she might have something resembling human emotions towards him. 
But here's the problem. Aubrey Plaza is a fine actress. Her strength, however, does not lie in portraying human emotions. Now, luckily, Andy in this movie is played very well by Gabriel Bateman, as is the mama's boy detective down the hall, played by Brian Tyree Henry, uh, even though he does resort to some mugging at times. But frankly, though, that is a much-needed addition to this movie because ultimately it can't decide who it's for. Is it for teenagers looking to see themselves in the Goonies and Stranger Things-like bonding of the young group of kids? I mean, what, what bottom-feeding executive decided that they had to hamstring and shoehorn in Stranger Things into this anyway? I mean, since that was so hip as another 80s throwback kind of thing. Ah, is it, I mean, what is this movie for? Is it for the horror purist? who might have seen the originals? Is it for people who enjoy satire and incisive social commentary or young adults looking for something scary to pep up a weekend excursion to the movies with something that will get under their skin? Well, sadly, this movie disappoints all of those audiences because while it has a little bit of all of those, it doesn't have enough or it isn't able to convincingly portray certain elements of those to appease any of those potential viewers. Look, in the movie's favor, there are a couple of entertaining kills for the Gorehounds, and one in particular is executed with some particularly ghoulish glee at the suffering of the unsavory character who meets his gory demise. But several times, scenes that could have been more fun or more disturbing, depending on which way the filmmakers wanted to go, instead took a middle road and were worse than either. Once again, they were boring. And while the Child's Play remake does have a nice modern sheen to it, it's shot well with some lovely oversaturated colors. It has this freaking Mark Hamill and Aubrey Plaza in it, for God's sake. Two actors I adore. It's, sa- it's sadly, it's a piece of crap. But it's a piece of crap that made $45 million against a $10 million budget. So stay tuned if they feel it's necessary to burden the world with a sequel and more. Uh, which brings us to the present. There are two Child's Play franchises. One, the one owned by Don Mancini and producer David Kirshner, and the attempted MGM United Artists reboot franchise. One has over three decades of history, with a plot line that has recently been unified and brought into the modern era, with most of its players and the actors that portray them intact. And the other is a coldly calculated pop cultural money grab attempting to update that franchise for the modern era, and the hip kids who were way too tech-savvy to get, a, get behind a magic killer doll. Now, it, look, it may be that the Chucky series is more geared for an older audience, like myself, and that the typical horror-going crowd of teens and youth will be drawn to the slicker, bigger-budget remake franchise. But I think it's inarguable which has the better story at this point, or more horror chops. And furthermore... There's an aspect to the Mancini-Chucky movies that makes them more relevant than they may appear on the surface. The Chucky franchise is one of the most trans and queer-coded franchises in modern horror movies. And the only one that comes close is Hellraiser, and that may be because Clive Barker, like Don Mancini, is part of the LGBTQ community. The most blatantly queer-friendly entries are certainly Bride and Seed, though there are friendly nods in several of the other films to that culture. Bride itself is named after Bride of Frankenstein, a movie directed by gay director James Whale. And as I mentioned earlier, the casting of Alexis Arquette, the tasteful, non-cartoony inclusion of the gay friend David, and the casting of queer icon Jennifer Tilly were major nods to queer culture in that film. And if you don't know, 
Uh, if you didn't know Tilly was a queer icon, go watch Bound, the first movie from the Wachowskis, who also directed the Matrix series and are themselves both trans. So Seed goes way further than Bride, with the titular character being one of the earliest major depictions of a genderqueer, non-binary character in a Hollywood movie. And yes, while the portrayal is not always the most exciting example of such a character, it was certainly far beyond much else at the time. And additionally, the character of Glenn or Glenda is a direct reference to not only Ed Wood's transpositive for the time, let's be clear, transpositive at the time film, but also it was so, so explicitly shown to be connected to Norman Bates, a gender fluid character played by gay actor Anthony Perkins. It's not a stretch to imagine, and there are even articles I've read online explicitly stating and YouTube videos about this, that this character would have and did strike a chord with genderqueer viewers, others who asked similar questions as Glenn or Glenda did. Am I a boy or a girl? Can I be both? Or am I neither? And ironically, Chucky himself is presented as a monster. He's misanthropic, he's cruel, heartless, but he ends up in the last movie in the body of a woman and seems quite comfortable with it. If you recall, there was the controversial line in 3 about how cool Chucky's going to be a bro. Well, apparently, he also thought it would be cool to be a chick. And when even someone as evil and as much of a bastard as Chucky can get his head around being non-binary, albeit in his own twisted way, it kind of asks us why it should be strange for anyone else. And at the current point in the Chucky storyline, Chucky himself is, in a way, trans. Now look, as I said before, it's Don Mancini's voice that informs the Child's Play franchise, and Don Mancini's voice is one of the LGBTQ community. It is not exclusively of that community, which is why these movies function so well as straightforward horror films. But an author's fingerprints are always on their creations. And seeing the franchise through the eyes of Don Mancini's lived experience, it becomes clear that he has always put some of who he is into his films. I mean, the fans didn't always go with him, as Seed was a bomb, and he went back to the horror roots of the series with great success. But it appears that the world has, in some ways, caught up with the stories he wants to tell. In the new TV series, the lead character is gay. And as opposed to Bride of Chucky, where Mancini worried that his empathetically written gay character would be derided as only being included as a way for the movie to be PC, and as a result killed him off in the most vicious way possible as a way to thumb his nose at that idea, now he can write a character like this one in the TV series without needing that kind of ghoulish flourish to counter any criticisms. The character can just exist and be represented matter-of-factly, and his story can be told without distraction. And it remains to be seen how the television series plays out, or how the next movie in Mancini's franchise is received, or where he takes his growing cast of characters. At the time of recording, right now, it's still a couple of weeks away for the TV show, and probably a year or more for a new movie. Uh, but the original Child's Play franchise has never felt more vibrant or full of potential. And it's able, to be, it's able to be played as comedy, the darkest of horror, as a social critique, or even as a beacon for marginalized community to feel represented. And I, I went into this marathon thinking that the Child's Play franchise was just another slasher series. I enjoyed the movies I'd seen. I knew enough about the others to feel like I had a hold on the overall picture of the franchise. But it... It wasn't until I sat down and watched them all back to back that I put together what a special horror series this is. I would go so far as to say that no other horror franchise, particularly one from the era that this one started in, has been as consistently 
good as the Chucky movies. The, the worst movie in the Chucky series is still better than a lot of the movies in Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw. Uh, it, that's pretty special. And more so, I never expected to feel like they had any positive social messaging to go along with their little death puppet killing people. I thought it was just Chucky saying something rude and killing people. And I was dead wrong. Uh, the Child's Play franchise is now one of my favorite horror properties. And I'm, ex I'm excited as all hell for the new TV show. And as for the remake, well, as Charles Lee Ray would say, don't fuck with the Chuck. That's it for this uh, edition of Horror Palooza, everybody. Thanks for listening to this. It's my first ever horror franchise retrospective. It will not be my last. In fact, there's a lot more planned for Horror Palooza this year, including coming up very soon after this releases will be episode one of season four of Horror Palooza, the 31 for 31 marathon. All the horror movies I'm watching in October. I watched 31 horror movies throughout the month of October, one for each day, and I have to follow my own rules to make sure I get a whole bunch of different ones in there. Ones probably you never heard of. So check it out. It's a great way to find some new movies, some great ones to watch for this, the most wonderful of seasons of the year. But of course, as always, thank you so much for listening. Stick around, hit that like and subscribe button. Uh, share it with all your friends. Tell everyone about Horror Palooza. Let's get the word out on this. Uh, my name is Sir Ian Dangerous. Thank you so much. I am your Uncle Frank. Find me on Twitter at Skinless Wonder, on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. And as always, thank you so much for joining me right here.